When is the letter O not an O? When it's an orc on its way to bash your brains in on this week's game, Rogue. Welcome to episode one of Like a DOS, the podcast on which I play, discuss, and review DOS games released for the IBM PC. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this first episode of Like a DOS, I'll be playing Rogue, released for the IBM PC by Epix in 1985. Now, in future episodes, I'll jump right into the game, but because this is a new podcast, I thought I would take a few minutes to introduce myself. And for those of you that do know me, I thought it might be nice to talk a little bit about my background with the IBM PC and DOS games. Now, in a former life, I really wanted to be a journalist. And so perhaps the best way to get through all of this background information quickly is by explaining who, what, where, when, why, and how. So let's start with who. As I mentioned in the show's opening, my name is Rob O'Hara, but most people online know me as Jack Flack or simply Flack. I was born in 1973, and I was lucky enough to have a dad who was interested in technology. My dad purchased a TRS-80 Model 3 computer in 1980 from our local Radio Shack. So by the time I was seven or eight years old, I was already playing Scott Adams' text adventures and learning my way around BASIC. A few years later, in 1982, my dad sold our TRS-80 and purchased an Apple II clone, the Franklin Ace 1000. So we were an Apple family for a couple of years, and then in 1984, he purchased an IBM PC Jr., but kept the Apple. So at a time when most people didn't even have a home computer, we owned two side-by-side in our living room. Now, by this time, I was already calling BBSs, and in fact, I was using the alias Jack Flack all the way back in 1984, shortly after the movie Cloak & Dagger came out, and I've been using it ever since. In 1985, my parents opened their own computer store called Yukon Software. Now, at that point, our Apple, our PC Junior, and a Commodore SX-64, that's the suitcase-sized luggable Commodore, all went up to the store while we kept my dad's IBM XT at home. Now, later that year, I got my first computer, a Commodore 64. Unfortunately, after a year, Yukon Software closed and my dad sold a lot of those machines, including the Franklin Ace 1000 and our PC Junior, but he kept his XT and I kept my Commodore 64. Now, today, most people associate me with the Commodore 64. I wrote a couple of books called Commodore and Commodore Gear, and I've been doing a Commodore podcast called Sprite Castle for almost 10 years now. But the fact of the matter is, before I had a Commodore 64, I was a DOS gamer. And even when I was heavy into the Commodore 64 scene as a teenager, I was still using my dad's PC to play games. Now, shortly after moving out, I built my first 386, and I've been playing PC games ever since. So, technically speaking, I've been a DOS gamer longer than I've been a Commodore 64 gamer. Now, today, I'm a guy in my late 40s. I work in IT, and I still live in Oklahoma. I'm happily married. I'm a father of two, and I have a lot of hobbies, including writing, collecting all sorts of stuff, and, of course, podcasting. So let's get to the what. Like a DOS is a monthly podcast on which I will play, discuss, and review old DOS computer games that were released for the IBM PC. Now, we already kind of covered that in the show's opening. 
I'll be playing games spanning the entire DOS library. So I may play a game from 1985 on one episode and pick a game from 1995 on the next. I might play the most popular DOS game I can think of, and I might play something so obscure that you've never heard of it. I definitely like to switch things up so you never know exactly what I will be covering on the next episode of the show. Where? Well, if you're listening to this, you already know where you can find this show. Like a DOS has several different feeds. There's one on iTunes. Um, I guess that's now Apple Podcasts for the show. If you want to listen to all my other podcasts, there's another feed on iTunes called Robcasts that includes the feeds for all my shows like Sprite Castle, You Don't Know Flack, and of course this one. And finally, my buddies Boat and Aaron over at the Amigos podcast have graciously allowed me to include my shows on their master feed. And that feed is anchor.fm forward slash Amigos podcast. That is a great feed full of all sorts of retro computing podcasts. So if you want to check out any of my podcasts without actually subscribing or want more info about what the shows are about, you can find information about all this podcast and all my other shows at podcast.robohara.com. I'm also into live streaming, and so you can find my streams over at twitch.tv forward slash Rob O'Hara, and all those streams get archived on YouTube at Amigos Retro Gaming's channel, which is... Uh, uh, on YouTube, and there is a playlist called Sprite Castle Plays. Another where you should know about is my Patreon account, which is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. There, you can sign up to support my shows starting at $4 a month, which works out to be $1 per podcast. Another where you should know about is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. There, you can sign up to support my shows starting at $4 a month, and that works out to be $1 per podcast I publish. You get access to behind-the-scenes blog posts, access to Rando Rob, a weekly video show I do where I feature random items from my personal collection of things, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and a shout-out at the end of every show, including this one. My 16-bit supporters, and those are the ones that pay $10 a month, get additional perks, including the ability to ask questions that I will answer on one of my shows. They also get a personal audio greeting and a few other perks. Now, all of my patron supporters get a shout-out at the end of all of my shows. The support that comes in through this Patreon goes right back into the show. Earlier this month, I bought a new microphone and new mixing board, and next month, my hosting fees and domain renewals are all due. My Patreon supporters are literally the wheels on which this podcasting train keeps things moving. Finally, the other wares I should mention, you can find me at facebook.com forward slash robcasts. On Twitter, I am Commodork. You can email me directly at robohara at robohara.com. And I also have a podcast voicemail hotline, which is area code 405-486-YDKF. That stands for You Don't Know Flack. It is a Google voice number that goes right to a voicemail. So you can call it any time, day or night, 24 hours a day. I believe Google Voice limits recordings to three minutes. So if you have something longer than three minutes to say, call back a second time and continue that message. Now for the win. For 2022, I've decided to publish my shows on a monthly basis. At the end of the first week of each month, I'll be publishing an episode of Sprite Castle. At the end of week two, I'll be publishing my miscellaneous show, You Don't Know Flack. Like a DOS, this show will be released at the end of the third week of every month. And on the fourth week of each month, I'll be publishing an episode of Cactus Flax, my arcade podcast. 
In addition to that, I stream retro games every Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. Central on Twitch. Again, that was at twitch.tv forward slash Rob O'Hara. Previously, that's mostly been Commodore 64 games, but I'm going to start adding old DOS games into the mix as well. Again, all of this information is available at podcast.robohara.com, so be sure to go there if you need to find more information. Why? Well, one, I really like DOS gaming, and I miss it. DOS games had a different feel than Commodore 64 games. Many of the early arcade games aren't quite as good on DOS, but then they had things like King's Quest that just blew my mind. So this will give me an excuse to go back and play some of those games I enjoyed and also explore lots of games that I never got around to trying. I was known for being a bit of a pirate back in the 1980s, so having access to online manuals has really opened up a new library of games for me to play. There was also a period of gaming I missed in the mid-90s. I got into console gaming, and for a while I was more interested in trading games than actually playing them. I know a lot of classic DOS games were released during the mid-90s, so I'm looking forward to checking out some of those I may have missed as well. Now finally, let's talk about how. Playing DOS games for many years has been, for lack of a better word, a pain in the DOS. For a period of time in the 2000s, I had a 486DX4100 that I kept in my office for occasionally revisiting old DOS games. But moving games back and forth was a hassle, and it took up a lot of space for a machine that I rarely used. Then I discovered DOSBox, which is a DOS emulator for modern computers. DOSBox is a great program, but at a minimum, it requires some configuring. It's an absolutely fantastic emulator, but slightly more complicated than simply firing it up and clicking on games to get them to run. Now, many old DOS games have been released on Steam, which makes them very accessible. But last year, I discovered a project called ExoDOS. ExoDOS is a DOS ecosystem that uses a front end called LaunchBox and allows you to click and play essentially every DOS game ever released. Now, if you download the entire thing, it's over 500 gig in size, but you could do a small install and download each game separately as needed. Now, finally, I should mention that I do own a Mister, which is a FPGA-powered computer designed to recreate cycle-accurate versions of older consoles and computers, and I do occasionally use that as well for playing old DOS games. So I don't think I'll go into how I played each game on the episode unless I get feedback from people saying they want to know that information. But if I do run into any technical issues getting a game to work, I have a few different options for getting them to play. Well, I think that covers everything about me. Now let's enter the Dungeons of Darkness to talk about this episode's game, Rogue. I am holding in my hand a three and a half inch floppy disk. Now it's funny, I've been using computers for so long that I still refer to three and a half inch disks as the newer kind, as compared to older five and a quarter inch disks. Now this particular disk I'm holding is blue. There's a label on it with the names of two games handwritten in black Sharpie. I recognize the handwriting, it's mine. <laughs> I don't remember what I made this disc. It's probably from 1990 or 1991. When I was a senior in high school, I took a basic computer class that had IBM PCs, and they added some computers in our library as well. 
Now, these machines were all connected to a network, and one day a classmate of mine and I managed to get the teacher's administrative password. The two of us created our own admin account, and then we created a hidden folder on the network where we stored a bunch of games. So this disc, the floppy I'm holding right here, was probably made to copy games we had at home and take them to school. And the two games written on the disc label are Tetris and Rogue. Now, Rogue was first published for the IBM PC in 1985 by Epix. It is a game for one player that uses keyboard controls. Before I start talking about Rogue, I'd like to talk a little bit about the history of Epix. Now, according to Wikipedia, in 1978, a woman named Susan Lee Marrow invited John Freeman to join a game of Dungeons and Dragons hosted by Jim Connolly and Jeff Johnson. Now, Connolly had purchased a Commodore pet, which he used for tracking their D&D campaign, and came up with this idea of writing a game so that he could write off the cost of the computer on his taxes. Now, Jim Connolly teamed up with John Freeman, and they formed a company called Automated Simulations. They had a little success in publishing some space simulation games, but their next game, a dungeon-style game called Temple of Abshai, you may have heard of, uh, was also a success, but... Because the game was not a simulation, they didn't think it matched the name of their company. So they created a second label called Epix. Now, those two men did not stay in business together long. John Freeman was frustrated by the limited basic engine that Connolly was using for their games and left to start his own company called Freefall Associates in 1981. Uh, Freefall was made up of John Freeman and Anne Westfall. They were also joined by Paul Reich III. Now, after releasing a pack clone called Tax Dodge, Freefall went on to write Archon, which was published by Electronic Arts and not Epics. But that's a different story. That left Jim Connolly alone managing this large company. He brought in Michael Katz to help manage Epics, which was good for Epics, but bad for Connolly. Connolly eventually split off and formed his own company called the Connolly Group, where he got to develop more games. Now, in 1983, Epix had $10 million in sales, and their success would only continue to grow with games like Impossible Mission, all those games games you remember, like Summer Games, Winter Games, World Games, and one of my personal favorites, California Games. Now, for the Commodore 64, Epix was responsible for the fast load cartridge, which was a small piece of hardware that sped up the system's loading times by nearly 700%. They also made, in my opinion, one of the greatest joysticks of all time, the Epix 500XJ, an ergonomic stick that sat in the palm of your hand. There's not a gamer who grew up in the 1980s who had not heard of the name Epix. Now, part of Epix's downfall was that they were too reliant on the Commodore 64 market when gaming had already moved to PCs and consoles. Epix did not want to deal with Nintendo, so instead they tried making their own hardware, which ended up becoming the Atari Lynx. Now, unfortunately, Epix could not deliver the hardware in time, and so Atari refused to pay them. In 1989, Epix dropped out of the computer game market completely and only started making console games. But unfortunately, that same year, they filed bankruptcy. In 1988, one year before they filed bankruptcy, they had 145 employees. By 1989, they only had 20. They began developing games for the Atari Lynx, uh, but that didn't work out. In 1993, with only eight remaining employees, they eventually sold the company. 
Now, over the years, Epic's games have been relicensed. Some of them were re-released on the Nintendo DS, and we saw some of them come back on the Wii Virtual Console. And like I said earlier, some of them are now on Steam. Um, Now, Moby Games, who I rely on for a lot of information for my podcast, confusingly lists DOS and PC booter games separately. They are technically different, so I understand the reason that they have separate categories, but it makes counting the number of games released for DOS a little bit more difficult. Uh, Epics has 39 titles listed under DOS and 11 titles under PC booter, which were games for DOS that automatically booted up. You didn't need to load DOS first before you launched those games. And some games appear on both of those lists. Uh, some of Epics's best titles for the PC were Jumpman, Crush Crumble, and Chomp. Death Sword, Destroyer, Pitfall 2, Rad Warrior, Street Sports Baseball, Basketball, and Football, and of course the Temple of Apshai trilogy. They also released many of their games, game series on the PC, including Summer Games, Winter Games, World Games, California Games 1 and 2. They also released World Karate Championship for the IBM PC. Now, World Karate Championship is a game that if you if you mention that title, you have to talk about the lawsuit surrounding World Karate Championship. Uh, Epics was sued by Data East, and they were sued uh, because Data East said that their game, World Karate Championship, looked too close to Karate Champ, the arcade game that Data East had released. Both games feature two fighters. They feature fighters, one in a white gi, one in a red gi, and they feature essentially the same scoring system for each round, half point or full point, and they feature a judge on screen. Now, this was a very important landmark case, and in the end, the judge ruled against Data East. Um, The to paraphrase what the judge said was that anyone looking at the two games could tell they were different games. But the reason this lawsuit is so important in the history of video games is that if it had gone the other way, we would not see similar style games. We wouldn't have an entire genre of fighting games. We might only have one fighting game. (laughs) So the fact that the judge said that these fighting games were similar but different opened up the world to lots and lots of similar but different arcade games. So that's pretty much the story of Epics, but we're going to jump back in the timeline so we could start talking about the development of Rogue. Now, Rogue was designed by three men, Michael Toy, Glenn Wickman, or Wickman, and Ken Arnold assisted later. But this goes all the way back again to 1980. Now, Rogue was originally created to run on mainframes and was played on terminals and Unix systems connected to these mainframes. In fact, it was originally included in BSD, which is a uh, flavor of Linux. And it was free. So you could almost think of it as like Minesweeper or Solitaire for Windows. Uh, so it was played on these terminals or, or systems connected to mainframes. And Michael Toy says he was inspired by Star Trek and Colossal Cave Adventure, which were two very early games. Colossal Cave Adventure was 1976. And Glenn Wickman was working on a D&D style board game. So the two of them kind of got together. One was interested in computer games. The other was interested in D&D style role-playing games. And this becomes basically the nucleus of what would eventually become Rogue. 
Now, Ken Arnold had developed a different piece of software called Curses. And it ran on BSD, and what it allowed you to do was to place characters anywhere on a terminal screen. Now, before that, you had to write a line at a time, but this allowed you to place characters one place at a time and essentially move them around. So Michael Toy reached out to Ken. Ultimately, he shared the source code of Rogue, and Ken went on to improve the engine. So uh, there was a period of time where Rogue was not open source, but eventually it was released as open source in 1986. I guess there's a bit of contention about this because it was included in FreeBSD, but not the source code originally. So Michael Toy left college in 1984, and he became a consultant for Olivetti, this uh, Italian typewriter company. Uh, he was the uh, system administrator, and he met John Lane there, uh, who was also a system admin for the company. And John Lane was a big fan of Rogue. He had already seen this on mainframes and was familiar with it. And Lane told him, what you should do is port this to the IBM PC and release it as a commercial game. And so these two gentlemen founded a company called AI Design. Now, a few changes were made at this time. For example, before the player character was represented as an at symbol, because that's where the player was at. But on the PC, you had access to all these other ASCII characters or ANSI characters, and so they changed it to become a happy face. Another change that they made was they made the game less like D&D. Now, we'll talk about how the monsters are all represented by a single character in the game, but the letter K, for example, in the original version of Rogue, stood for Cobalt. But Cobalt is a character that only exists in Dungeons & Dragons, and so they changed the K to become a Kestrel which is a small bird and very annoying to on the early levels of Rogue. Now, to move things along, uh, Epix discovered the game in 1984 as well, and they reached out to AI Design to purchase the publishing rights. At that point, Rogue was ported to essentially every computer system you can think of. Uh, some of them had different graphics, like there was a Macintosh version, the Amiga version had uh, graphics and icons versus the ASCII representation of the dungeon. Uh, so some looked more like the original than others, but they mostly all played the same. Now, unfortunately, Rogue did not sell very well. The DOS version that was released in 1985 by Epix was essentially the same version that had been free for the past five years. A big problem with Rogue is that it did not look like modern games. If you compare the PC version of Rogue, which again is represented through ASCII characters, um, other games that were released that same year, 1985, you've got Super Mario Brothers for the Nintendo, ER Kung Fu, Commando, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Uh, in arcades at that time, we got Ghosts of Goblins and Hang On and Russian Attack. And even on DOS, we got King's Quest II, Ultima Four, Winter Games was released. So this game graphically did not look as good as all those other games. And eventually it just kind of got buried. The other problem was it was being advertised as a representation of Dungeons and Dragons. It was D&D that you could play on a computer. But that same year... Atari released Gauntlet <laughs> in arcades. And so if you put those two things side by side, 
graphically, there's no comparison. I'm not saying Rogue isn't a great game and in a lot of ways better than Gauntlet, but if you put those two games side by side, people are going to put their attention to Gauntlet first. One thing that's pointed out in a lot of articles about Rogue is that none of the original programmers made any significant amount of money from sales from the game. Now, again, Epics went bankrupt only four years after this was released, but again, this was a commercial version of a game that had been given away for free for five years. So it didn't sell great, and compared to other games that had been released at the time, it just didn't find much of a market space. Now, one of the most fascinating things about Rogue to me is the programmers wanted to address the fact that a lot of these styles of games were repetitive. For example, if you play the if you play Gauntlet, the first level of Gauntlet is always the same. The creatures are in the same place, the ghosts are in the same place, the monster generators, the keys, the maze layout is all the same. Rogue is not like that. Rogue uses something called procedural generation, which means using an internally uh, determined set of parameters, the game generates everything randomly. So everything in Rogue, every time you play, is different. That's a really important thing to know about Rogue. The layout of the dungeons are different. Where the objects are are different. Everything is unique every single time that you play the game. Now, one other trivia fact that I found about Rogue is how they came up with the name. And it was interesting. There were two factors that influenced the name of Rogue. One was they got the name Rogue from Dungeons and Dragons. So if you think about Dungeons and Dragons, it's mostly party-based. You would put everybody in a party and go on an adventure. But if you split off on your own, that's a term called going rogue. So the idea that Rogue uh, implies that you are a single person going on adventure rather than managing a party of characters. So that was one of the reasons why they chose the name Rogue. The other reason, though, is that it met 8.3 file name standards. Now, if you're not familiar with DOS, every DOS file name uh, has a maximum of eight characters, and then there's a period and a three-character file extension that tells the computer how to process it. So executables would be exe or com, a batch file ends in dot bat. And of course, uh, you know, modern Windows, people are familiar with like graphics, like dot JPEG or dot PNG, things like that. So, but you could only have these eight characters. So if you had this really long, complicated name, it wouldn't fit with the 8.3 file name standard. So Rogue did. And so that was the other reason uh, that they chose this name. So according to the manual, to load Rogue, you first have to boot your PC off of DOS. And there is a disclaimer that says you must have DOS 2.0 or higher. That's, <laughs> I, I don't know anybody that ever ran DOS 1.0. Uh, I think when we first got a PC, we had DOS 3 something, maybe 3.3. So 2.0, uh, just about everybody wouldn't be able to run this. Uh, it says to, after booting to DOS, you need to remove your DOS diskette and insert the rogue diskette. And you also need 128K of available RAM. Again, this is a very low amount of RAM, so nobody should have any problem running rogue. Uh, if you just type the word rogue, that will launch the game. But the manual does mention that there are some different extensions. Now, this is as good a point of as any to say that there are 
dozens of different versions of Rogue. Rogue was constantly being updated and newer and older revisions were uh, put on floppy disks that were sold. So this applies to most copies, but you may find a copy of Rogue that's slightly different. But in the manual, it says there are different ways to launch Rogue. One is Rogue forward slash R, which will automatically restart your saved game. You can save a game during Rogue, and it will save it to a file called Rogue.sav. So as long as that's in the same directory, if you type Rogue forward slash R, it will start the game and automatically reload that saved game. Rogue forward slash S will just show the current rankings of the game. It's like the high score table, but it won't actually start the game. It just shows the high scores. Rogue forward slash BW It says, if you have a color graphics card and are using a black and white monitor, starting a new game of Rogue with this option will improve the clarity of the screen. So I tend to think of this as like a high contrast display mode that would change, uh, make things easier to see on a black and white or green and black monitor would be more likely. Uh, And then finally, Rogue space file name will restart a new game using uh, any saved game that you have. One of the tricks... We'll talk about later is uh, Rogue. A lot of people were cheating <laughs> Rogue and tried to save and reuse saved files. And so Rogue does have some checks uh, in place to look for those types of things. Uh, in fact, I guess we could talk about it now. One of the things uh, that Rogue does is when you launch a game with a saved game, uh, it deletes any previous saved games. And so what this was intended to do was stop people from, you know, escaping the program and reloading it with the same saved game over and over. And people would do that for two reasons. Number one, it will, if your character is about to die, you could abort the game and then restart with the same save game and not lose uh, progress. But the other thing is, depending on how many moves, how many different things that you've done in the game, that affects the random number generator. So if you pick up a object and you don't like what it was, you could restart the game and then move a couple of extra steps and pick it up again. And it would be a different object. So, uh, people were, were abusing the system. Now rogue in general is a top down dungeon crawler. The goal is to make it to the 26th level of the dungeons of doom, retrieve the amulet of Yindor and return it to the dungeon surface. Uh, now along your way, you will find gold. You want to collect gold because ultimately your score is based on how much gold you have collected. Uh, if you do not retrieve the amulet of Yendor and spoiler, you probably won't. (laughs) Then when you die, your ranking is based on how much gold you had when you die. So gold is your score unless you complete the game. Uh, One of the things I like to talk about is their pop culture references or any relation the game may have to things that were happening at the time. And obviously the most obvious connection this has is to Dungeons and Dragons, heavily influenced by that and gives people the ability to play a Dungeons and Dragons style game by themselves without needing uh, a dungeon master to run a campaign. Uh, again, uh, I also like to mention whether it was a original or arcade port. Obviously, this was a port of the Unix version uh, that was also done by the original developers. 
The box and manual are very interesting to this game. The front of the box has a line drawing that almost looks like vector art in a way. And it has a picture of our hero um, grabbing the amulet. Now, when I say hero, in very, very, very early versions of Rogue, the hero was referred to as Rodney. That got dropped long before the game ever made it to the PC, and it I believe it got dropped before people even mostly started playing it on mainframes. So it's more of a historical trivia fact than anything that would be in the game. But you may have also noticed that the amulet of Yindor, Yindor is Rodney spelled backwards. Interestingly enough, no one seems to remember who Rodney was <laughs> or how his name ended up in this game. Now, the back of the box has screenshots and a lot of information about the game. But the big thing that the text pushes is the fact that the game is randomly generated. It starts off by saying never the same game twice. That's quite a promise, but it's the reason this classic continues to be the most popular game on college mainframe computers. Uh, it says at the bottom, Rogue, the college mainframe classic, finally comes to the home computer. So that seemed to be the two things they were stressing in their uh, PR was that, number one, the game is randomly generated so that it's different every time you play it. And number two, that this is a game that was made popular on college mainframes and is now available for your home computer. The manual mostly covers information already mentioned. It says that you need 128K of RAM. It gives the uh, video, the switches to start it in mono mode. Uh, there is no audio settings. If you have played Rogue, it will beep using the PC speaker, but that is about it. The title screen of Rogue comes up with a giant purple, black, and white piece of artwork. It has a monster with tentacles. The monster's face almost looks like a skull until you examine it more closely. And then in front of the, the monster is the adventurer, that's you, holding a torch in one hand and a large sword in the other. And across the top, it says, Epics Rogue. Now, if you have an older version of this, and there are many older versions that were ported to the PC, like the version from AI, uh, before Epics released it, it will not have this title screen. And that's really the version that I had originally as a child was the version that doesn't have the Epic screen. Of course, this is the version that I've, I've come to know and play over the last many, many years. You'll be prompted to enter your name. So you type your name in, hit enter, and you will be dropped into the dungeon. Now, there's a lot of things going on here. There are statistics at the bottom of the screen, you can see which shows your hit points, your strength, what level you are, uh, what level of the dungeon you are. So that information is all at the bottom of the screen. Uh, you will see one room drawn of a dungeon. Uh, the walls are kind of brown. The tile of the floor is each square that you can occupy is represented by a small green period. Uh, and then you will see yourself, a yellow smiley face. There are doorways on some of the walls. There can only be one doorway per wall. So if you already see a door, for example, on the north wall, there's no reason to look for a hidden door. There's only going to be one doorway per wall. 
Uh, everything in the game is represented by an ASCII character. Now, there are lots and lots of objects you will find through this game. You may see a blue arrow that will represent a weapon. You may see a blue music note. That's a scroll. A blue exclamation mark is a potion. A little blue circle is a ring. A blue kind of a T-shape is a wand or staff. You may see a blue square with a hole in the middle. That's armor. These are, It sounds like I'm giving a lot of information, but once you play Rogue one time, you will recognize all these things. There could be little red spades in the floor. That is food. Food, very important in this game, as in Gauntlet. Uh, you could see a yellow asterisk. That's gold. So you definitely want to pick up any gold that you see. You'll also see a flashing green square eventually in a room. Those are the stairs that go down to the next level of the dungeon. If you are unfortunate enough to discover a trap, it will appear as a purple diamond. Those don't normally show up until you've triggered it. Uh, and then you're going to see the capital letter A through Z. Those are monsters. We're going to talk a lot about monsters uh, here in just a moment. Now, Rogue is completely controlled by the keyboard. It seems very overwhelming the first few times you play Rogue. If you hit F1, you could get a list of all the commands. They won't all fit on the screen at the same time. There are two screens of commands. Everything that you do in the game is represented by a single character on the keyboard. So we'll talk about some of the more common ones, but uh, as you play Rogue, it just becomes second nature. Once you've played this game a few times, you'll remember what all the keys are. You don't use all the keys all the time, and the most common ones you will pick up on. Now, to move around, you can use the arrow keys or I use the number pad. I have noticed that on the Steam version of the game, I have to hit NumLock every time that I play the game, and when I exit the game, I have to <laughs> unpress NumLock. So if you're not moving around, you definitely uh, that's something that you could check that NumLock is pressed down. Uh, there is a fast mode that you can play by pressing scroll lock on the keyboard. And what fast mode does is moves your character in any of the four directions until there is a choice to be made. So, for example, if you find a passageway that goes 10 blocks to the left, 10 blocks up, up, 10 to the right, 10 up, and then there's a doorway. Without fast mode, you're going to have to hit 40 keys. You're going to have to hit left 10 times. You're going to have to hit up 10 times until you get to that doorway. But if you hit scroll lock and you enter that hallway with scroll lock pressed down, the minute you step into that hallway, it will jump you to the next doorway. It just automatically will go until there's a thing. So if you're walking through a room and there's something in the middle of the room, it will move you until you are adjacent to that square, whether that's a monster or an object to pick up. Now, a in-between version is you can press the letter F on the keyboard, and F is fast mode, so it's not, it's not like scroll lock where it's always turned on or you have to turn it on and off. F only enables fast mode for the next move. So when I play Rogue, my right hand is on the uh, number pad, and my left hand, my forefinger is on the letter F, and my thumb is on the space bar. 
everything, you're constantly going to be prompted for more, more, more when text pops up. And the way to get past that is by hitting the space bar. So uh, the space bar is probably the button you will hit the most in the entire game. So uh, again, on the on my left hand, I use F and space bar. And on my right hand, I use the number pad. That's just kind of where my fingers rest uh, when I play Rogue. Uh, now, if you press I, which is one of the many keys that does something on the keyboard, you'll be able to look at your inventory. And if you press that right after starting Rogue, you'll see that you start with the same things. You always have a mace, which is plus one comma plus one. The first plus one is to hit. The second plus one is damage. Uh, there are better and worse weapons. We'll talk about those in a minute. You'll be wearing some armor. Uh You'll have maybe a bow and some arrows, I believe, but that's basically what you start the game with. Everything else will be acquired as you adventure through the Dungeons of Doom. <laughs> uh, now, again, the goal is to get down all 26 levels, find the amulet of Yindor, and then go back up 26 levels and exit the dungeons. Very, very difficult to do. Uh, in fact, I've never done it. And we'll talk a little bit more about how difficult... I won't say impossible, but very, very difficult it is uh, to beat this game. Uh, Rogue is a turn-based game, which means every time you move, there are other things, uh, I should say, where you don't move. Like if you press the letter S, takes a round to search for a hidden object, or I believe just the hitting the period is rest. It's like typing wait in a text adventure. It just causes the game to go through one cycle. But everything is turn-based, cycle-based, so... Every time that a cycle happens, you use a little bit of food. So you can look at playing Rogue as a few different ways. One way to look at the game is the goal is to get down 26 levels, find this amulet, go up 26 levels and get out. That's one way to look at the game. Another way to look at the game is to collect as much gold as you can before you're killed because gold is the score. The scoring system is based off of gold. And I guess a subset of that would be to collect as much gold before you are killed or before you starve to death. Now, like everything else in the dungeon, food is randomly placed. So food can become very valuable later in the game. And keep in mind, every time that you move in the game, you're using a slight amount of food. We'll talk about ways to conserve that food later in the game. Now, when you first play Rogue, you should imagine that each dungeon is built on a three-by-three three grid, almost like a tic-tac-toe board, which gives you nine squares. Now, each of those nine squares holds a room or the possibility of holding a room. Not every map has nine rooms. You may find a maze in one of those nine vectors, we'll call them, and you may find nothing there. But you'll never find ten rooms. Each of those nine imaginary blocks on the screen has the possibility of containing a room. The only thing left to do now is to start exploring. You'll begin to wander around. You may find a monster in the room that you begin with or an object that you would like to pick up. Uh, one of the lowest level monsters that you will encounter are bats. Bats don't have very many hit points and they flutter around. They're more of an annoyance than an actual threat. So if you start off in the room and you find a bat, you'll want to kill it. So to fight in Rogue, 
the way that you fight is you get next to an opponent and you run into them. <laughs> so every time that you move towards an opponent, a round of battle takes place. The game figures out whether or not you hit your opponent based on what weapon you have and any modifiers. Then the game determines if that monster hits you. And then each time it figures out how much damage is potentially done. Now, during these battles, you will want to watch your hit points. It gets very easy to run up against a monster and just, if let's say the monster's on your left, to just hit left and space bar, left space, left space, left space. Uh, but your hit points may be going down to a dangerous level. And sometimes the best course of action is not to stand and duke it out <laughs> with a dangerous monster. Running is always uh, an acceptable response to running into trolls and centaurs and other dangerous creatures. So you'll definitely want to watch your hit points. You'll also want to watch your strength. There are monsters in the dungeon. We'll talk about some of the special monsters shortly that can affect your attributes. For example, rattlesnakes will take a number away from your strength. The only way to restore your strength is through magical items, uh, which we will also talk about. Your hit points will build up as you move around, and the higher level you become, the faster your hit points regenerate, but your strength never regenerates on its own. You'll have to find that healing in a potion or a scroll. So you definitely want to watch everything that's going on on the bottom of the screen when you are involved in combat. Now, hopefully you will defeat the bat and then you'll gain some experience. And after you beat a few monsters, you will see you begin to level up. And each level is represented by a different title, adventurer and rogue and wanderer and things like that. And because of that, you don't want to skip any rooms in a dungeon, at least not at first. You want to explore every room in the level before going down because you can build up experience and more importantly, you can find items and you'll want to find as many items as possible before going down because until you have the amulet, you can't go back up. This is a one-way game. Uh, you don't want to leave any potentially missed food on a level because food is very important. Again, you can think of rogue like gauntlet in the way that just by being alive, your food is going down. So uh, that's one way that I think when I play rogue, I think every move is one step closer to starvation. So I am always on the search for food. Let's talk about some of those items that you can find in rogue. Uh, first of all, again, there are weapons. Those are the little blue arrows that you'll run across. There are maces, uh, daggers, spears. There are bow and arrows and crossbows and crossbow bolts. The best weapons you can find in the game are long swords and two-handed swords. Uh, each one of those does a varying amount of damage. The game does not tell you any statistics behind the scenes, but... People have decompiled the source code, and so we know the answers to those things now. But if you find a long sword or a two-handed sword, that's going to be most beneficial to working your way through the dungeon. Next up are these little squares that represent armor. Uh, it is the opposite of D&D in the way that the higher your armor class is, the better off you are. So in Dungeons & Dragons, the better your armor is, the number goes down. But in this game, which is a little confusing if you're used to playing D&D, the better your armor class is, the higher that number is. So there are lots of different types of 
armor in the game, leather and studded leather and banded mail and chain mail. I believe the best armor you can find is plate mail. Now, one of the things early adventurers may find is cursed items. Cursed items will have a negative modifier and cannot be dropped or removed. I don't know why, but Rogue loves to throw cursed armor <laughs> into the mix. So let's say, for example, you have some chain mail and you are armor class five or six and you see some plate mail. So you take off your chain mail. By the way, take you have to take off armor with a capital T. Did I mention that some of the characters are different, whether they're lowercase or uppercase? Let's add that to the mix. <laughs> so shift T or capital T takes off armor and shift W uh, wears armor. Lowercase W is wield a weapon. A little confusing. So you put on your plate mail and all of a sudden you notice that your armor class is not as good as it was. And when you look at your inventory, you see that the plate mail is minus three, which means it takes three points off of your armor class. Well, that's not good. So then you try to remove the armor and you find out that you can't. <laughs> now, there is a spell in the game called review, uh, remove curse. And if you find that, that will fix any cursed item that you're currently stuck with. But there's a lot less remove curse scrolls than there are cursed items in the game. I'll just put it that way. There's also a monster that we'll talk about later called the Aquador. And an Aquador, every time they hit you, makes your armor rust and removes one level of your armor class. So if you run into a Aquador, if you see it before it comes and attacks you, the best thing you can do if you have any metal-based armor is take off your armor. Because Aquadors don't do hit point damage, they only damage your armor. The one exception to that is if you're wearing leather armor. And so there's definitely uh, a strategy of finding leather armor and then increasing it with magic because the Aquadors won't hurt your armor. So lots of little details that you learn after playing this game for <sighs> 40 years, almost 35 years. Oh, boy. Uh, next up are the scrolls. Those are little musical notes. Now, when you pick up a scroll, you may be a bit confused because the name of every scroll is completely randomized gibberish. So the name of a scroll might be Plixel, Mixel, Biff, or something like that. The only way to find out what a scroll is is to either read the scroll or cast, read a identify scroll and identify the other scroll. We'll talk about identify scrolls very shortly. Um, some of them have obvious effects when you read a scroll. For example, you might read one that says, uh, what bulging muscles? Well, and if you look, your strength just went up. So that's an easy one. But some of them are not as obvious. You'll see things like you hear laughter in the distance or, you know, different things like that. Now, one thing you could do is by playing Rogue so many times, you will start to see what those do. Or... The other thing you could do is Google <laughs> those exact phrases and you will be taken to FAQs of the game that will translate. You know, when you hear maniacal laughter in the distance, it will tell you what that scroll actually just did. So if you're just starting out, that's a pretty uh, uh, helpful resource to be able to Google some of those things. 
Um, one of the most uh, important scrolls in the game is the identify scroll. That's, I referenced that. And what that does is tell you exactly what any other object is. So, for example, you'll find rings. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, but you'll find it'll say a turquoise ring. Never, ever, ever put on a ring without knowing what it is, because if it's cursed, you can't get rid of it and it will do something really bad to your character. So when I find rings, I just hang on to them until I find identify scrolls. Now, how do you identify an identify scroll? You don't. You just randomly read scrolls as you find them. And one of them will eventually be an identify scroll. Now, a lot of the items in the game that are randomized, once you use them one time, when you find another one, it will tell you what it was. Some of the scrolls don't. It allows you to name them. So when you hear laughter in the distance, it says, oh, that was weird. What do you want to call this scroll? And you could call it laughter. And every time you find one of those scrolls, it'll say, you found a laughter scroll. So there's a, the game does help you in some ways, but it doesn't it doesn't hand you everything for sure. Uh, there are potions, the little exclamation marks are upside down uh, exclamation marks, I think, are, are potions. Um, again, they're randomized and named by color. So you may find a blue potion or a red potion. And every time you play the game, these are randomized. So what was a red potion last game will not be the same as what red potions are in this game. But every red potion in one game will always be the same thing. It's just randomized between each game. Now, the letter Q stands for quaff, and so you'll want to quaff potions. I guess D stands for drop items, so that letter was already taken, so Q is quaff. Most potions are good. There are a few bad ones, but the majority of potions are good. So the minute I find potions, I drink them so that I can identify them. Uh, healing potions, restore strength potions, things like that, you will definitely need when you get into the deeper levels of the dungeon. So knowing what those are ahead of time before you get down there, very important. Um, also, some potions can be thrown. There are potions of paralysis and potions of confusion, uh, which, again, you'll mostly identify by quaffing them on your own and finding out that your character is paralyzed for a few rounds. And when you get into a fight, you can throw those at a monster. And if it's successful, they will be paralyzed for a few rounds. So very handy uh, to hang on to those things. There's also rings, which I briefly mentioned earlier. You could wear two rings, one per hand. The good rings are very powerful and will really help you. Uh, for example, there's a ring of slow digestion, which makes you use food slower. And you could actually wear two of those if you find two one on each hand, and that will stop you from using any food at all. There are rings of fine secret objects, uh, all sorts of rings like that. But just know that most rings use your food at double the rate or some expanded version of the normal, you know, whatever it's using per round. It, it uh, uses more food. So if, you're, if it's not something that's really beneficial, you can take that ring off and only put it on when you need it. There are, as I mentioned, many uh, cursed rings, like rings of poison and rings of teleportation, which means every five or six steps, you're going to teleport to a random spot, and you cannot remove a cursed ring without using a spell of remove curse. So if you get a cursed ring, you might as well quit <laughs> and start over. I don't recommend randomly putting rings on during the game. 
you'll also find wands. Those also have random names. It'll be a oak wand or a silver wand. You have to use an identify scroll to find out what they actually do. Wands can really help you get out of dangerous situations. There are teleport wands that will teleport a monster away from you. There are wands that will change what a monster is. Now, that's random, so you could end up with something worse than what you're facing, but if you're in a bad spot, never hurts to try. <laughs> uh, so, so wands are very valuable, but again, they're only valuable if you use an identify scroll and figure out what they are. There are wands of light that will light up rooms and dark rooms you may encounter. Uh, that's important. So lots, lots of good wands in the game. Uh, we talked about finding food. Those are the little red uh, spades and there are slime molds or regular food. I don't know that they are different. I don't know that they, they help. I don't know that they're different other than, than just the words. Um, the yellow asterisks we talked about, that's gold. Gold can be anywhere from one gold piece to several hundred gold pieces. The further you get in the game, the more gold you will likely find. Uh, we talked about the stairs, the purple diamonds, and then the monsters. Now, the monsters are mostly grouped by level. So, for example, in the first few levels, you will see bats. You will see kestrels uh, represented, letter K. You'll see emus. I don't know why there are emus running around this uh, dungeon, but there are, so you'll fight emus. Um, you'll find orcs pretty early on, and orcs will, uh, if there's gold in the room, orcs will run and sit on the gold and leave you alone. So you have your choice of engaging them or not engaging them. But if you want the gold they're sitting on, you'll definitely have to fight them. Lots of monsters in the game. And again, just to, to stress this, there are 26 different monsters, one for each letter of the alphabet that you'll see in the game. There are lots of monsters that have unique things about them. So, for example, um, uh, leprechauns. Leprechauns uh, have gold. And so when you kill a leprechaun, you can get whatever gold they were. And sometimes it's a pretty big reward. However, if a leprechaun ever hits you, they will take a chunk of your gold. So if you're trying to get a high score, you may want to weigh whether or not it's worth attacking leprechauns or not. There are also nymphs, which work the same way, except for if they hit you one time, they will steal an item from your inventory. One technique some people use is to drop the things that they really uh, value before fighting a nymph. <laughs> And then go pick everything back up. So that's one thing some people do. Or you can just avoid them. Aquators, which I mentioned, each time they hit you, they will take a level from your armor class. Rattlesnakes can take a one point off of your strength. You will also see wraiths, uh, vampires, all of these things uh, that will will um, you know take away things from your status. I think wraiths take away actual levels, experience levels. So they can be very dangerous. So in the early levels of the game, you will find easy monsters. You'll find bats. You'll find emus, all these little things. And once you start getting a few levels down, you'll start running into things like centaurs. Now, in a game where you may only have 30 hit points the first time you encounter a centaur, centaur can hit you for about 20 points. So it gets, you're always progressing in the game, but the, the game is always 
adding more and more difficult monsters for you to face. So on, on level one is about 50-50 odds, but then on level two and level three, you get stronger and stronger and have the same monsters. But then on level four, all of a sudden new monsters appear and they are again stronger than you and then you will level up, level up. And so that's why exploring every room and getting all the experience you can from beating all these easy monsters on the early levels is so important in Rogue. Now, one of the things I talked about was exploring each room, but you want to explore each room with as few moves as possible. Again, this comes back to every move that you make in the game uses a slice, a little bitty tiny bit of your food. So if you walk into a room and you search every dot, left, right, left, right, across every part of the room, you've used a lot of your food versus if you only search every other line in a room, which you could see uh, one tile all the way around your character. So if by searching every other line, you will cover every line in the room. So and you've only used half the amount of food. So uh, getting through the game using as few moves as possible is important. So what do I do when I play this game? Uh, I explore every room. I quaff every potion the minute I find it to identify what they are. Uh, I try to make sure that my hit points are as high as possible before entering a combat. And you can do that by moving back and forth on a few tiles or running back and forth in a hallway and, and build your hit points back up. Uh, I wait until I have an identify scroll before I will use rings or wands. So as I collect those, uh, I just hang on to them. I don't use them until I can identify them. And then as you go through the game, there are four different statuses in regards to food. One is normal. And then the game will tell you at some point that you are hungry, which has no effect. And then the third will tell you that you are weak, which tells you something bad's about to happen. When you get to the fourth status, you will become faint and you will begin passing out. I try to eat food the first time I pass out due to lack of food. So the minute that I'm faint and I pass out, that's when I eat. So I get the most amount of my food. <laughs> I string my food along as long as I can. But you definitely don't want to be passing out in a dungeon where ant where uh, creatures can come and attack you while you're passing out and they will get multiple attacks. So that can be um, a pretty bad news. So everything in this game, the behind the scenes, the under the hood information is not presented to you. The game doesn't tell you how many hit points your enemies have. It doesn't tell you their armor class or how much damage a mace does versus a longsword. None of that information is in the actual game. However, this game has been completely deconstructed. People have gone through the source code and found all that information. So if you go online and you look at FAQs about Rogue, you will find information like a mace does 2d4 damage. Uh, I'm not sure that's right. I'm just as an example. And a sword does 3d4. But that information doesn't exist in the the game proper that's only what people have found out by looking at the actual code and deconstructing things so there's a lot more information out there on the internet about rogue than what actually appears in the game rogue 
So uh, to know how many hit points a centaur possibly has or how much damage it could do to you is valuable information. But again, not something that the game tells you, just something that people have figured out uh, over time. Now, while researching this episode, I found an interview with Glenn Wickman, who, again, was one of the original uh, designers of Rogue. He worked on the very original Rogue. Uh, This interview was on RogueTemple.com. And one of the things he said was he was surprised that people are still playing, playing Rogue today, which... I can see both sides of that coin. I love playing Rogue to this day, but if I hadn't played it in 1985, would I be playing it today? That's a hard sell. Uh, It's very primitive looking and feeling in regards to these types of games. Uh, In fact, in this interview, Glenn compared players of Rogue to people who still watch silent films today. So that's um uh you know an interesting way to 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 think about that like if we think about watching silent films like I know what silent films are but very few people seek out silent films so that that's uh gives you his impression of how uh ancient he he views this game. He actually describes Rogue as being a game that was something they could do with the tools that they had available at the time. Of course, if you think back to this uh, existing on a mainframe being played on, on Unix terminals, the graphics, um, the, the, I don't mean resolution and graphics, but the resolution as far as how many things they could put on the screen or how many items they could keep track of. Those were limitations that the computer had at that time. Now, Another thing that he reveals in the interview is that he has never actually beaten the game. This is someone who designed the game and has been playing the game ostensibly since 1980. He has never successfully got the amulet and returned to the surface. And so if you talk to other people who play Rogue, I would say the vast majority have not actually won Rogue. And the funny thing about Rogue is that if you were able to accomplish this, it would not help you the next time you play Rogue. (laughs) There is not much that can be learned about beating the game that will help you beat the game again. We'll talk about why that is uh, in just a minute. Um, But the other thing that he mentioned is that he does not like games that have a steep learning curve. And so what he really liked about Rogue, about the design of the game itself, was that when you start Rogue, your character is already generated and you're immediately in the game. So there's not, if you've played other dungeon crawler type games, uh, I grew up playing Wizardry and Bard's Tale and games like that. You had to generate multiple characters and assemble your party and you could spend you know, half an hour or an hour just assembling things before you ever start the game. And Rogue's not like that. The minute that you launch Rogue, you're in the game. So that was one of the things that he really enjoyed about the original game. Now, he made reference in this interview to Epix's copy protection, which was something that Epix added that was not in the original code. Uh, Epix had copy protection built into the game, and if it detected that you were playing an illegal copy... 
it didn't tell you up front, but what it did was behind the scenes, all the monsters would do six times the normal damage. And then when you die in the game, there is a little ASCII representation of a tombstone that has your name on it, and it would say killed by a monster and what your gold level is. Um, but in this version, it would say rest in peace, software pirate, <laughs> instead of your name. And then it would say killed by the copy protection mafia. So I I would actually like to have that version more than Epix's regular version. I would love to actually see that in person. But uh, uh, so I thought that was that was pretty interesting. There's also had some sort of protection that would detect whether or not uh, the game was launched with the save games being marked as read only or if the discs were not able to be written to, it would uh, change the way that the game played so that you couldn't uh, try to use those as cheat mechanisms. Now, one thing that I found really interesting around this same time was a program that was released called Rogue-O-Matic, and that is spelled R-O-G-O-Matic, but it's pronounced Rogue. This is a program that was written by four grad students in 1981, one year after Rogue appeared on mainframes. And this was a script or a program which was designed to actually play Rogue. So this was, if you can think of it like a bot or a script, it was designed to play Rogue. So after writing this program, they turned it loose on the mainframe and let it play Rogue by itself. Now, after just a week, it had a better median score than the top 15 players. Now, I remember Rogue was played on mainframe, so everybody was competing against one another, not in real time, but their scores were saved. So the Rogomatic script had a higher median score than the top 15 players, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and after three weeks, it actually beat the game. So again, let's contrast that to Glenn Wickman, who has not beat the game since 1980, and he wrote the game. This script, Rogomatic, was able to beat the game in three weeks. Get all down to the bottom level, get the amulet, and get all the way back out. Uh, the four fellows that wrote this script went on to do other interesting things. I did read that one of them went on to create the Lycos search engine and the other guys went on to work all in uh, IT. I think the most interesting thing to me about Rogomatic is that it's able to play Rogue even though Rogue is randomly generated every time. So it can't rely on the layout of the dungeon or what items it will discover in what order. And so I read a little bit about Rogue Omatic, and it has different modules. So there's a module for moving and exploring rooms. There is a module. It also doesn't have the visual sense, like what we have, uh, you know, as human beings. So it has to explore the room and find out what's in the room. But there's a movement module. There is a combat module. There is uh, a runaway <laughs> module. It, it evaluates everything that's going on all the time in the game and switches to what module it needs based on its own uh, hierarchy of, of importance that it determines. The last thing that I did read about Rogomatic was that it contains more lines of code 
than Rogue. <laughs> so Rogomatic is actually a larger program than Rogue itself. Now, I don't believe that Rogomatic was ported to DOS or any other operating system. Uh, I did find a couple of YouTube videos showing Rogomatic running, and it's fascinating. It's really interesting if you're into that sort of thing to watch an AI script run around and play a game better than I can. <laughs> How unfortunate. This game was ported to basically every 8-bit and 16-bit computer system that was on the market at the time. Of course, the game, as we mentioned before, started on mainframes and Unix. We've been talking about the PC version, which was released by Epix. It was released for the Amiga, for the Amstrad CPC. There's a version on Android, Atari 8-bit computers, the Atari ST, the Commodore 64. There are versions on Linux. There are versions on Macintosh, the PC-88, PC-98, the TRS-80, the Coco, uh, the ZX Spectrum. Every computer system got some sort of port of Rogue. In fact, uh, as I mentioned at the opening of the show, I do another podcast called Sprite Castle, and just weeks ago, a game called Rogue 64 was released for the Commodore 64, so they are still uh, releasing what we have now dubbed roguelikes. So the game Rogue, you may have heard the term roguelike before. This is the game Rogue that started roguelikes, and there's actually uh, a group of people that argue online whether or not Rogue should be considered a roguelike. <laughs> which is an interesting uh, inception sort of layer of, uh, of levels. But Rogue inspired hundreds and hundreds of games. Shortly after Rogue was released, there was a game called Hack. Uh, Hack is very similar to Rogue, but there are more attributes than just strength and, and different things happen in the game. But Hack inspired NetHack, uh, which was a networked version of hack. And there was Mariah. There were MUDs, uh, the game Diablo. You may remember from, I don't remember if that's late nineties or early two thousands, but Diablo is considered to be uh, a roguelike type game in world of Warcraft. And so obviously those games are very different in their visual presentation. Uh, you could probably put a hundred thousand copies of rogue in the same amount of space that it takes to install World of Warcraft, but those are all considered to be roguelikes and are a very, very, very distant relative of this game, the original Rogue. Now, I checked eBay for copies of Rogue. There are not many copies of Rogue for sale just because so many people downloaded uh, the other earlier free versions and even uh, Epic's, the Epic's release was was freely shared on BBSs at the time. Uh, there are two boxed copies for sale right now on eBay. One is $330. The other one is listed for sale at $999. Uh, there was a copy for the Tandy, which recently sold for $250. So not a cheap game to add to your collection. And it's one of those games that if you purchased, you probably would not open and use the original floppy disk, it would go directly onto a shelf for display. So as I do on Sprite Castle, on this podcast, I would also like to share, uh, when applicable, my personal memories 
of playing Rogue. is one of the first games I ever played on the IBM. It may have been the first game I ever played on a PC. Uh, I definitely remember playing it and learning how the game worked at a very early age. I don't think I first played the Epics version. I believe I played the version from AI. And the reason I think that is because when I got the Epics version which is the one you get from Steam. It has the Epic's title screen, and I had never seen that before. So I'm I'm pretty positive that the version that we had, actually, when I say pretty positive, I'm absolutely positive because uh, during this week, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I had that three and a half inch floppy disk, and I also have a USB three and a half inch floppy drive. And I did look at that version, and it is not the Epics version; it is the AI release. So uh, that so the Epics one is not one that I saw until later. I don't know. When I originally started playing Rogue, that I knew the goal was to get the amulet and get out of the game. I don't know that I knew that. I thought the game was just to fight as many monsters as you could, collect as much gold as you could before you get killed. Which essentially, whether or not you know that, that's really what Rogue is. uh, Unless you're one of the very few people that end up beating Rogue. Um, I remember enjoying Rogue, but also realizing that even at that time, it seemed pretty old-fashioned. Now, it didn't really seem that out of place in regards to PC games, because quite frankly, during the very early 80s, we're talking 1983, 1984, on the PC, mostly what we had were text adventures or very, very rudimentary arcade style games. When I say we, I don't mean all PC owners. I mean me personally. So when we wanted to play games, we usually played them on the Apple II or within a year or so, I would be playing them on the Commodore 64. So compared to the other stuff that I had seen on the IBM at that time, it didn't seem that out of place. But where it did seem really old was compared to other systems. And again, like I said, arcades. When you went to the arcade, the same year that this Epics version was released, and you went to the arcade and you saw Gauntlet, I mean, there was no comparison. Everybody wanted to play Gauntlet, and playing this seemed, uh, you know, very, very old-fashioned. But when you were at home, I didn't have Gauntlet at the time, and so um, I definitely continued to play Rogue. And I keep comparing Rogue and Gauntlet because... At their core, they're similar games, but at the time, I don't think I ever compared those two games. I never thought of Gauntlet as being a better version of Rogue or Rogue as being a more uh, archaic version of Gauntlet. I don't think I ever made that comparison until uh, much later in life. I do remember the fact that I was really impressed that the game randomized everything every time that you played it. Uh, When you played Donkey Kong, 
there were patterns. When you played Pac-Man, there were patterns. Uh, every arcade game, every video game that I played had certain patterns. Even role-playing games, even if the monster locations were randomized, in general, if you knew what kind of monster you were about to face, uh, you knew what to expect. And so the fact that the, the design that everything in this game is randomized, I just absolutely loved as a kid. Um, I didn't know all the things then that I know now. I didn't know uh, the different characters' hit points. I didn't know all those things. And so I know a lot more about the game. But And, and I think some people consider that to be cheating as far as knowing all that. But I could tell you this. It hasn't helped me beat the game. <laughs> All the knowledge I've acquired, everything that I've read, all the FAQs, all the spoilers, everything that I've ever found has still not helped me beat Rogue in 35 plus years. So if if that's uh, if those are considered cheats, they're not very good. So overall, would I continue to play Rogue? Well, absolutely. Uh, part of the reason this episode took me so long to get out is because every time I started working on it, I would open Rogue for reference and I would start playing it <laughs> and I would play multiple games of Rogue and not get down uh, recording or finish writing what I started out to do. So I have been playing Rogue off and on for 35 years. I will continue to play Rogue. The game can be incredibly frustrating. You can instantly die. And this game is, uh, if you look up this game, one of the hashtags you'll find is permadeath. Once you are dead, you are dead. That game is over and you have to start all over. So uh, there are many things that can make this game frustrating. Running into uh, a creature that is way more powerful than you are is frustrating. Going down a hallway, finding something like a troll, and then running the other direction and finding another troll, and eventually having these trolls surround you and dying in the middle of a troll sandwich is not fun. Uh, having a great game where you have the best armor and the best weapon and then starving to death is not fun. So there are so many things about this game that can be frustrating. But the same thing that makes this game frustrating is also what makes it great, and that is the randomization. It's that every time I start this game, I think this might be the one where I find the amulet. Again, so many things have to take place, have to be generated. You have to find the right items. All these things would have to line up, plus you would have to play a perfect game to actually win. So not only would you have to make perfect decisions throughout the entire game, but also randomly get the right objects. And so the odds of those two things both happening in any single game is not very likely, but it has happened. People have beaten the game. So hasn't happened for me in the last 35 years. I'm with Glenn Whiteman. <laughs> so all I can say is, is keep trying. Thanks for checking out Like a DOS. What did you think of this episode's game? What was your favorite DOS game? Email your thoughts or feedback to me at robohara at robohara.com. You can also contact me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. 
Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave a message on my podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. All supporters of my podcast on Patreon get behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. Like a DOS is available from iTunes, the official Amigos podcast feed at anchor.fm forward slash Amigos podcast, and the RSS feed located at podcast.robohara.com. And don't forget to visit that site where you can find all my podcasts, including Sprite Castle, You Don't Know Flat, Cactus Flax, Throwback Reviews, Multiple Sadness, and others. Thanks again for tuning in. Now it's time to enter that dungeon, go find that amulet, and we'll see you here next time on Like a DOS. And finally, a very special shout out to all my Patreon supporters. For January 2022, this includes my 8-bit supporters, Alan Hennessy, Alan Hudgens, Armadon Restel, Brian Barr, Carrie Clanton, Chris Albright, Chris Folds, C. Dubs, Cowbird Boy, Dan Paradroid Heavey, Dave Velociraptor, David Hearn, David Modelak, Eric Strayanisi, Garrett Allier, Gary Heather, Graham W. Vebke, Hacker Radio, Jake Nonamaker, Jason Warns, John Bodokar Schaller, John Treholt, Jose Cazada, Joshua Eckroth, Mark Alley, Mike McLaughlin, Mitsuyama, Mr. Bundy, Mr. Wacky, Nathan Dagenhart, Olav Hope, Patrick Markey, Rad Max, Rydar and Christopher Bow, Retro Trace, Rick Reynolds, Robot Doctor 82, Roy Jacobs, Scooter Prime, Scott Lambert, Scott Meredith, Scrap Arcade, Stephen Burt, Steve Rasmussen, The Slow Norris, Travis Gossie, Zeke Pavsky, Zerfall, and the mysterious Cobra Kai. Extra special thanks to my 16-bit supporters, Bill Spear, Boatshead Tavern BBS, Dan Creek, Dave Zilly, Edward Smith, John Morrison, Matt Nicholson, Matt Smith, Scott Von Drasick, Steve Sharippa, and Vintage Volts. <laughs>